0: Choices have to be made about who will be targeted for immigration enforcement and who will be placed on the back burner. And so if I am thinking about how my government is enforcing immigration law, I want them focused on the highest priorities. That might include somebody who is a true threat to national security. Um, For some people, it may include somebody with serious criminal convictions, though that debate itself is nuanced and complex. (laughs)
1: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University and the studios of WPSU, I'm Michael
2: Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam.
3: And I'm Jenna Spinelli, and this is Democracy Works. We are talking about immigration today, guys. And uh, on the show today, we have a professor from right here at Penn State. Shoba Wadia is a professor at Penn State Law and the author of a new, very well-timed book called Banned Immigration Enforcement in the Time of Trump.
2: It's a really, uh, a really good book. We were actually lucky enough to read it before it came out, and it just really does a good job of laying out just a very complex set of issues, right? Yeah, it focuses a lot on the enforcement
1: of uh, immigration law, in particular on the bureaucracy responsible for it. You know, every once in a while in American politics, you see some bureaucracy or another really becomes a target of uh, public attention, of uh, high profile hearings, uh, maybe becoming a political issue in and of themselves. And I think it's fair to say that's the case with uh, the Department of Homeland Security and in particular ICE, the Immigration Customs and Enforcement.
2: Well, it's been an issue since Donald Trump came down the escalator, right? I mean, the, the immigration was a focus of his campaign and a focus of his presidency. And a, a number of the initiatives that he has put into place has directly challenged the uh, the existing uh, immigration law and procedure, right? Right. And it really shows the the, uh you know
1: the tools that the president has through his constitutional responsibility to administer law, right? And some of that is written into the law, right? This kind con- this notion of discretion. Right? A- absolutely. I mean, there haven't been that many fundamental changes, to my knowledge, in immigration law since Donald Trump took office. But but rather, what has changed that's so important is is the way that he's choosing to enforce the laws. So, sure, anytime Congress passes a law, it's a it's a, or most of the time when Congress is passing a law, it's setting up some sort of means for the. Executive executive branch to administer the law. And when they do that, they may be giving the executive branch uh, broad discretion to uh, execute the law in the ways that they see fit, or they may give it rather limited discretion where Congress is very specific.
2: Well, and, and some of that discretion is not is inevitable and inescapable just because a uh, question of resources, right? Well, absolutely.
1: I, there, are, there are lots of reasons for it. I mean, Congress doesn't necessarily want to take the time to right. detail how something should be uh, administered, but they also don't necessarily have the expertise. Uh, and I, I go a step beyond this and say that you know, at the level of real implementation, what, what's sometimes referred to as the street level, uh, the street level bureaucrats are the ones that are... Uh, you know, confronted with having to make decisions uh, instantaneously, perhaps, or, or the ones that, that need to make decisions that really affect people's right. lives. Right. It's where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. yeah. And some street-level bureaucrats have a lot more discretion than others. You know, a, a forest ranger out in the middle of the forest has all kinds of discretion mm-hmm. about what he's going to do. A, a teacher in a classroom has pretty fair discretion, but if she's operating under a uh, strict set of, uh, of uh, standards from the state, maybe they have less discretion.
3: Yeah, the, the other thing that I thought was really interesting that we'll hear Shoba talk about was she comes at this both as as an attorney, but also as someone who has been down to the southern border several times and working with families who are in detention centers and kind of speaking to that that personal experience. And uh, she she'll talk a little bit about the role that that attorneys play here and what seems on, on the one hand to be like a very gray area of you know what rights do people have or not, and just trying to help people find their way through and how the, the rule of law kind of fits into Right, all because,
1: this. I mean, in, in many cases here, you're talking about people interacting with uh, these street-level bureaucrats
2: at, who, who have uh, the least power of anybody. So this bureaucracy, right, that deals with these very complex situations, very complex Um, statuses of people are new and uh, the relationship within the bureaucracy is complicated. But I think what's most important (laughs) that she's pointing to
1: is not that it's all complicated, but that this agency is now under different executive leadership with a different set of priorities and they're being told to execute their jobs in a different kind of way. And so a lot of what we're seeing is the fact that, you know, president's in charge of the bureaucracy, he's turning the bureaucracy in a direction of being much tougher yeah. And I think the, you know, I think nothing probably shows that as well as that raid in, was it Alabama or Mississippi where they raided? Oh, Mississippi the, Mississippi. Mississippi, yeah. where, yeah, the, where they raided the food processing plant. And, you know, it's kind of unusual for them to go after people with families, people with kids in the school, people that were well-established into their communities. It happens. As I think she'll probably point out, it's happened in state college. Uh, but there's just more of it now, and it's tougher. And that's because, you know, the president can, within the confines of the laws that he has from Congress, can, can use his bureaucracy in, in one way or another.
2: I think that's a a really good summary, and I think it's a good point on which to bring in uh, Shoba and hear what she has to say.
3: Yeah, so here is my interview with Shoba Wadia. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Shoba Wadia. Shoba, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. It's good to be here. So, Shoba, as we as we think about uh, immigration enforcement, I, I think it it might be helpful to. Uh, start with with a couple of, of definitions um, these terms are, are again very much used interchangeably and, and and not always correctly so what what is the difference between a, an illegal immigrant and an asylum seeker
0: so i I don't really used the term illegal immigrant. I instead prefer the term undocumented or non-citizen. And even if you open the immigration statute, uh, people are not defined as an immigrant or illegal immigrant. In fact, formally speaking, immigrant refers to someone who is seeking admission to the United States permanently. For somebody who is without and immigration status. Uh, that person uh, might be labeled as undocumented. It's a tricky thing though uh, because we are living in a space where politically somebody who is undocumented is permanently labeled as such. Uh, when someone drives over the speed limit, right, we, we don't call them illegal, right? That's not a permanent status we provide them. Um, It's also inaccurate because status is constantly changing. So it's possible for somebody to have entered the United States without papers or crossed a border and to many years later be a U.S. citizen. And so status is constantly evolving. So using these labels as noun can also Mm -hmm. be inaccurate. In terms of where asylum seekers fall into the mix – that's also a little complicated because you could be in a lawful status and apply for asylum. You could also be undocumented and apply for asylum. Um, and one phrase I use in when I do Know Your Rights workshops, for example, is just because you're undocumented doesn't mean you don't have the right to be here. We have actually several remedies, humanitarian remedies in our law that – are available to qualifying people in the United States who are also without papers or without status.
3: Uh, It was interesting to to read in the book how each each administration has a significant amount of discretion when it comes to uh, enforcing immigration laws. What is the mindset that underlies the the Trump administration's use of discretion as it pertains to, to immigration and how that might differ from previous administrations? So
0: there's a lot to unpackage there just to have the same plate on what immigration enforcement is. In the immigration space, there are a lot of different ways that the law can be enforced. It can be enforced to arrest somebody, uh, interrogate, place somebody in detention, or place somebody in removal or deportation proceedings. So that might be how immigration enforcement happens on an individual Mm -hmm. level. And then there are these macro decisions that can be made about immigration enforcement. For example, if the enforcement arm of the Department of Homeland Security, one arm is known as Immigration Customs Enforcement, issues a policy that applies to a whole class of people. So one difference that I've seen with this administration is that there is expanded enforcement, not so much in terms of the resources the government has to enforce the law, but in terms of who is being targeted for immigration enforcement, where, how, and
3: why and um how does how does that that mindset differ from from previous administrations how how they u- um, how they utilize this discretion
0: so there are a lot of different topics we could use as an example to say how enforcement in this administration is different uh, to continue on the theme of who we might arrest mm-hmm. or detain and deport. It used to be that administration set priorities and this is a directive from Congress um, and it also makes common sense and dollars and cents right because we have a universe of limited resources one guideline from two thousand and eleven from the Department of Homeland Security documents that the government has money to deport about four hundred thousand or less than four percent of the undocumented immigrant population. So choices have to be made about who will be targeted for immigration enforcement and who will be placed on the back burner. And so if I am thinking about how my government is enforcing immigration law, I want them focused on the highest priorities. That might include somebody who is a true threat to national security. Um, For some people, it may include somebody with serious criminal convictions, though that debate itself is nuanced and complex. Many of the people that I talked to for my forthcoming book, Band, really looked at today's climate as one where everyone is a priority. So the enforcement is more haphazard. uh, There is less true prioritization. And instead, the government is going after who it might Find by accident or through a collateral arrest and is also going in locations that were previously considered to be sensitive locations like at or near a school or places where enforcement action would not necessarily happen on a grand scale like at a worksite.
3: Sure, like the, there was just recently a raid at a, it was a, a chicken processing plant in, in Mississippi, um, so, so things like that.
0: And that's not to say that there has never been worksite raids or enforcement actions previously. In fact, some immigration advocates would say that they were a signature during the George W. Bush administration. Our own community right here in State College was the subject of an immigration enforcement action on Asian restaurants during the Obama administration. Um, But the scale of the worksite enforcement action that took place in Mississippi earlier this month, and eighty workers, um, many of whom are parents. So the multiplier effect of how many people are affected by an enforcement action is is striking um, and includes another story or version, if you will, of family separation.
3: Mm-hmm. And, and when it comes to actually carrying out enforcement, there are a whole host of, of agencies that, that kind of work together or, or maybe don't work so well together. You can, you can tell us, but uh, they, there's, there's a bunch of, of acronyms that, that tend to get thrown around, um, ICE and, and CPB and, and INS. Can you kind of walk us through what each of those agencies does and, and, and how sure. they are all connected?
0: Sure. And it really is an alphabet soup, mm-hmm. right? So law itself is complex. The immigration statute has been compared second in complication to the U.S. tax code. And then if you look at how Congress has delegated many of the immigration functions to federal agencies, that's how we're in the space where federal agencies are carrying out immigration law. It's because Congress has delegated these responsibilities to specific federal agencies. The Department of Homeland Security or DHS is a relatively new agency. In fact, I was working as a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. in the wake of its creation. And so I was in the middle of what was then a very fast and uh, furious debate around Uh, the creation of a new agency. It was a direct response to the 9-11 attacks. And if you were to compare it to how quickly or not Congress gets things done today, um, you might even be surprised. So DHS is a large cabinet level agency. It does not house only immigration, but it does house three main immigration functions. One is called Customs and Border Protection or CBP. They've been in the news a lot this past summer, too. They are responsible for enforcement at the border. They also have responsibility for short-term detention. They are the first people that an asylum seeker might interact with if they arrive at the border and they are expressing a fear. ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, is another enforcement arm, and it is responsible for investigations, long-term detention of immigrants and families, as well as the actual or physical removal of non-citizens. USCIS, or U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, for many years was dubbed as the customer service agency until recently had Nation of Immigrants in their mission mm-hmm. statement and is responsible for processing applications for asylum, green cards, citizenship. So you can imagine if the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, there's a lot of room for um Lack of coordination or discord. So the Department of Homeland Security is not the only agency responsible for uh, immigration functions. Uh, The Department of Justice, uh, which has at the helm an attorney general who is not a political um, houses the immigration court system. And there are 50 plus immigration courts sprinkled throughout the United States. Um, and there is an administrative appellate body known as the Board of Immigration Appeals. Uh, so this is where an immigrant might end up if they are placed in removal proceedings. The government acts as the prosecutor, if you will. In fact, it is ICE attorneys that represent the government during these removal proceedings. And the defendant or the respondent will be the non-citizen, who may or may not have counsel or a lawyer because there's no court-appointed counsel in immigration proceedings, which are considered to be civil in nature. In fact, if you're detained, uh, the likelihood that you will navigate the removal process uh, without counsel is very high. Uh, 84% of detained immigrants have no counsel.
3: Uh, yeah, and I actually wanted to ask about that. You know, we in all of the the coverage of what's happening at the, the southern border, we we see a lot and you hear a lot about lawyers going to the border. And, and so what what role do do attorneys have here?
0: So attorneys are exhausted, um, <laughs> but they play a really critical role. And we don't have to go to the border to see what the system or what is broken about the system. Uh, So for example, right here in Pennsylvania, uh, there are scores of detained immigrants that go unrepresented. Uh, York County Prison is connected to the York Immigration Court. It has about 2,000 beds. A third of those beds are reserved for immigration detainees, making it the largest county prison in the Northeast holding ICE detainees. We also are home to one of the only family detention centers in the country in Redding, Pennsylvania. So the Berks County Residential Center is about a 96-bed facility holding uh, mothers and children, whole family units, fathers and children, and so on.
3: So, some of this I think, gets to uh, what what you talk about in your book regarding the rule of law. um you there's there's a line that it's you know law plus equity, fairness, plus rules that that mm-hmm. strikes me again to be like a a very a very difficult balance to mm-hmm. to strike. Are there certain models, certain approaches that that you think work better at at trying to have have a process that that is that is equitable, that is fair, mm-hmm. things like that?
0: so that particular line about rule of law and equity came from an interview i had with a former uh, official in in the ins and that was a a metaphor for really how i think about the rule of law and the role of discretion in 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 an earlier work i really focused my research and first book on the concept of prosecutorial discretion uh, and uncovered really what was a landscape where discretion is often exercised favorably for humanitarian reasons. And so compassion has always been a A key component in our immigration system, and discretion is very healthy and necessary because of the limited resources that I just described earlier. So if I were to put that together and you know what I think the rule of law, if I even had that role as Czar should look like, you know I think any discretionary choice made at the macro level by an administration for example, or a federal agency or at the micro level, towards an individual or family, should favor the non-citizen. So that's, that's the simplest way I might describe how I think discretion should be used. It's a powerful sword, and how it's used really matters. And I think that's the key difference we've seen. And that's one reason we've seen a breakdown in the rule of law. There have also just been, in my opinion, explicit violations of the actual law uh, in in many instances, uh, so that that might serve as my short response.
3: Yeah, so, so kind of giving giving people the benefit of the doubt, almost, or kind of kind of starting from a place of yes as opposed to to a place of no.
0: That might be one way mm-hmm. of looking at it. I mean, let's say so. One thing I'm currently looking at now is the discretion that Congress actually gave to agencies uh, with some of the remedies in our law. And we can even use asylum as an example. Interestingly, about with asylum, you not only have to meet the refugee definition, but even if you meet that refugee definition, you can be denied in the exercise of discretion. So the idea that somebody has a genuine claim has been found to be a refugee can be denied in the exercise of discretion is very troubling to me. So that might be an example of how dark side discretion or discretionary denials, in my view, are uh, the way not to think about discretion. Rather, somebody who satisfies the statute, where Congress has already expressed their values, uh, should uh, generally be... Protected or uh, have a remedy exercised in their favor
3: you you also talk in your book uh, about one one possible way forward might be to move immigration out of the Department of justice and in into a new agency. Can, can you talk more about what that might look like?
0: Sure, so as it stands, the immigration court system is in the justice department. And so this is a, a bit unusual if we were to compare it to what we think about courts. In that way, immigration courts are not real courts. The federal rules of evidence don't apply. The judges are not truly independent. They're not Article I judges. They are employees of the Department of Justice. The volume of cases they have to handle are astronomical compared to your federal court judge. In fact, one immigration judge in San Francisco has analogized immigration cases as doing death penalty cases in traffic court. And There's a lot of pressure to be compliant with directives from the attorney general. And these directives can sometimes undermine independence too, even though we do have a regulation that favors and supports judicial independence. So there have been many calls over the years, but in particular in the time of Trump, for there to be an immigration court that is independent, that is free of the Department of Justice, where judges can truly act independently. There are so many unusual rules in the Justice Department that, again, would surprise anyone who cares about checks and balances. So one example is the so-called certification rule. The certification rule allows the attorney general to essentially look at a case that was decided by precedent and published by the Board of Immigration Appeals and decide I don't I don't like the outcome in this case I'm going to certify this case to myself and I'm going to unilaterally issue A different decision. And so the decisions are literally coded as AG decisions. And the Attorney General has certified multiple cases and multiple significant cases in the time of Trump that have really disrupted decades of case law, if you will, and shrunk the opportunities for asylum seekers to acquire or apply for protection. Or for families to be recognized as a social group. Most recently,
3: who's keeping an eye on this stuff as as the to to catch or to help bring light to these these types of situations you just described?
0: To some degree, journalists and programs like mm-hmm. this one are uh, playing a watchdog role. The Office of the Inspector General in the Department of Homeland Security has also played an important role. Lawyers play a critical role in being an eyewitness to what is happening on the ground. And I think it is also unsettling even more for immigration lawyers who are familiar with the law and are able to see when a statute is being violated. So certainly one impetus in writing this book was you can't sit still to some degree, right? Congress wrote a statute 20 plus years ago saying that, Any person can apply for asylum in the United States, regardless of how they entered. How can an executive turn around and say, if you arrive at the southern border outside a port of entry, you can't apply for asylum? That flies in the face of the statute. There are so many policies like that that have been carried out by this administration. And I've seen the human impact, right? Not just in the clients that we serve or we consult with, uh, but also in the interviews that I conducted with individuals and families. We haven't talked about the travel ban or the Muslim ban. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to
3: get to that before we wrap up. But it's
0: another huge policy in the time of Trump that excludes people in legal relationships for no other reason than where they come from.
3: Right, right. Right, so, so yeah. Before we we wrap up here, um, you know, with with all the attention on the southern border and, and everything happened there, it seems like the the Muslim ban has faded from the public consciousness, mm-hmm. or at least something that's that's you know talked about a lot in in the media. Can you uh, help us all remember where things stand with that? I know there was a, a Supreme Court decision, I believe, last last year's mm-hmm. term, um, but in our like Twitter-addled brains, I I think I've sure. I've lost some of those details. I'm sure some of our listeners have, too.
0: Sure. So it is alive and well. Uh, The third version of the travel ban was issued as a presidential proclamation. It was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court on June 26, 2018 in a 5-4 decision. Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the court, found that the travel ban likely uh, is in compliance with the immigration statute a position I don't agree with and likely does not violate the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution. But what that actually of the First Amendment, excuse me, but what that actually translates into on the ground is significant. Tens of thousands of families are separated because of the ban. This includes U.S. citizens who are married to Yemeni nationals. The law is very clear that A U.S. citizen who marries a foreign national, Um, the foreign national qualifies for a family relationship and a green card if they're otherwise admissible. I'm simplifying Mm -hmm. here. Um, But the extra layer of the travel ban is that if you come from one of these countries, you can't get a green card. It also affects tourists. We might think of Disney World or okay you can't go to Miami Beach for the weekend that doesn't sound very significant but as i profile in the book too there is a story of a couple from Iran and the they're both physicians and the mom gave birth to twins and the grandparents were unable to visit their grandchildren and hold their grandchildren in their hand and help their daughter while she went back to work because they could not get in as a result of the ban. And at universities, parents who are unable to watch their children walk or graduate or receive their degree because they can't enter as tourists. Penn State University, where we are situated, is the fourth most affected Mm -hmm. university in the country by the first Muslim ban. When we had our first community forum in January or February of 2017, we had two overflow rooms at the law school and nearly 300 people. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the significance that the ban has had, even in our own community. Mm
3: um so as as we've we've discussed, this is very tedious, very difficult, very what I would imagine um emotionally trying work that 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 you and so many others out there are, are doing what what is your north star like what keeps you going through all of all of this work that that's also you know ever changing too so it is intense
0: work I think the one benefit I have is is experience. So my 23-year-old self as an immigration attorney is very different than my 44-year-old self. Uh, I also have a responsibility. So to be modeling for my students who are also triggered or who might um, be emotional about the work – or who may have never worked with a traumatized family, I keep my own self in check so that I'm available to them and that... They know that there are different ways to respond to trauma. I don't teach them that. I actually have a specialist come and talk to my students about the different ways they might respond to trauma and secondary trauma. Uh, What do I do personally? I don't know that I have a a magic pill um, or a North Star. I'm a mother, so that keeps me busy. And it's certainly hard to not see – you know, your own children, when you're working with children and families. I've had really young kids, babies in removal proceedings. That's really hard to see. Uh, So it's a mantra to me that I do not want any child I meet in removal proceedings to go to court alone. So, so far, I have a hundred percent success rate with that. So I I also remember that any amount of exhaustion I might have pales in comparison to the bravery and the resilience of the people that I'm working with. Uh, So it's really – I can't sit in my corner and complain for too long uh, because there's a lot of work to do and I'm in a privileged position knowing the immigration law uh, and a lot of people need our help. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, yeah, and, and you know, not only are you out there doing this work every day, you also found the time to to write a book about it. That uh, I, I know, I certainly learned learned a lot from reading it, and, and I hope our listeners will too. Uh, so, Shoba, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.
1: So, yeah, we were talking before the break about. About discretion and how bureaucracies are given lots of uh, lots of room, some some more than others, to make decisions as they as they see fit. It's also important where Congress uh, puts agencies because they can get wrapped up in the culture of a department in which they're placed, and the culture of departments can be very different. Uh, if and it also uh, there there are also differences in how independent uh, the street level bureaucrats are or the lower level agencies can be. So.
2: It- interestingly, I mean I, I thought it was really um a pithy little summary that uh, that the immigration law is as complicated as the tax code, which just kind of tells you just how complex and and multi layered this whole thing is but I mean it is for our purposes right it, it, worth talking about how this all fits into a, um, a separation of powers argument, right, with uh, Congress overseeing the executive and then the judicial setting the terms for what is allowable within the statute. And her argument, if I understand it correctly, is that some of that separation of powers dimension is diminished because the AG, the attorney general, is, is can just step in and say, no, I don't like the way you... Um, you you ruled on that, right?
1: Well, right. I mean, especially under the current administration, the attorney general is a you know is representing the president's uh, politics and the president's. Uh, political preferences. And her argument is that courts shouldn't be under the sway of the political judgment of the attorney general.
2: Precisely because of the separation of powers argument, right? Right. She Mm -hmm. thinks
1: that courts should be more independent and that Mm -hmm. these courts in particular need to be set up as independent from the judiciary. And it all goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is that, uh, you know, the president, through his control of the bureaucracy is able to make dramatic decisions in public policy and take it in one way or another, maybe differently from where Congress meant it to be, maybe not differently from where Congress meant it to be. But the but the role for Congress then becomes coming back and questioning that the decisions that the executive branch is making and perhaps adjusting the amount of discretion they have or in other ways... Uh, trying to influence. Uh, didn't we just see something pretty dramatic about this? Yeah, in, in, in I mean
2: it, it is you, difficult. You, you brought, to, yeah. I know you brought a <laughs> quote about it in the testimony. Uh, Congressman Congressman Jamie Raskin said um, to the to the to the person he was interviewing, "You can't tell me why there is a new policy. You can't tell me what motivated the new policy, and you can't tell me what the new policy is." Is that a correct assessment? And Daniel Renault, who is the um, with the CIS. Uh, said, that is my testimony, sir, yes.
1: Well, right. It speaks to a more general issue uh, going on right now between Congress and the executive branch where the uh, Congress's you know, responsibility for oversight isn't taken all that seriously by the executive I, branch. I think
2: that's putting it le- mildly. But, but I right, think what, right? you're,
1: what you're seeing here, it's not that unusual. It's bureaucrats pushing their discretion as far as they can and Congress stepping in and saying, whoa. What exactly is happening here? This is not something that we intended to be happening. Explain to us why this is happening, and under what kind of authorization you're doing this. Uh, the inability of him to come up with it, I think, speaks more to the kind of chaos that we see with so much of the bureaucracy in this administration, more than
2: more than anything else. I, th- I think you're being generous. I think the explanation is that this is this is unexplainable. I mean, there's just, there is no legitimate explanation for this change.
1: Well, the legitimate explanation is that somebody at the street level felt like this was a decision that they should make because it was consistent with the preferences
2: of higher levels within their administration. Well, and we're not getting any answers from the people who can answer that
3: question. Yes.
1: Right? Oversight is not taken seriously right, by the administration. Right, right, right. And I, I think that's a, 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 a problem with how our separation of powers is working. Right now.
2: Yeah. Again, we're talking about discretion, right? We're talking about how do we use these very limited resources of the federal government to make decisions about who stays and who goes. And within the Trump administration, we've seen changes towards um, going into – ICE facilities. We've seen changes of going into schools. So people who are doing what they're supposed to do, working.
1: We've also seen changes within the culture of
2: ICE because they've hired so
1: much and maybe have not been as careful in hiring as they need to be. And and so that's a whole different area it takes you into, which is the the culture of the bureaucracy.
2: All right. Well... um, plenty to argue about here very and, provocative issue yeah, and yeah.
1: really an important issue in American politics right now uh, and it will be critical in the 2020 election absolutely I don't think there's anything that unifies the uh, Republicans right now as much as uh, well maybe the courts
2: and, and I, but I actually think you're right to to frame this issue in the long term around um, separation of powers and how the the ineffectiveness of Congress to operate as an institution undermines democracy we're seeing it across the administration right now yeah
1: yeah yeah. just the inability to 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 do the oversight that they that they need to do although i should note that charlie dent did not agree with us about that
2: yeah that's true um so it's a very contentious (laughs) point which we've we've clearly demonstrated here today so in any case um thanks to shoba thanks to jennifer the interview uh, and um, and thank you all for listening. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman, and this has been Democracy Works.